So if there is no self, who is it that's wandering in samsara? Well, as I mentioned, when Upandita is asked that question, he responds, this is a very good question. But if you think about it too much, it'll give you a big headache. But tonight we'll try the um, short version and uh, see if we can arrive at a satisfactory understanding. <clears throat> but in order to answer that question, we need to understand that there are at least two ways or two different views of reality to be looked at. And the first of those is the conventional view of reality. And the conventional view of reality is that I'm a male, human being, sitting here as a, in the teaching role, while many of you are male or female, human beings sitting here in the student role. And in that conventional understanding of what's happening here, there is and there are a me and a you, conventionally speaking, myself, yourself. But there's another view of this reality that's going on here, and really, when you look to the front of the room, you do not see Steve Armstrong, the Dharma teacher, sitting up on a podium. You see form and color. Or, I should say, form and color is seen. At that level of reality, there's no yourself and there's no myself. So, as articulated, these two views as articulated by Nargarjuna, second century monk in India, he said the Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on convention, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. So the short answer to who is it, or who is wandering in samsara, we might say habit. Or we could say, cause and effect. Or we could say, ignorance. Or we could say, karma. Or when Trungpa Rinpoche was asked, who? He said, your neuroses. I've handed out a map of samsara, and we could say, this is a map of the mind. It is a traditional Tibetan tanka painting, or it's a copy of a Tibetan tanka painting, which is a picture of samsara and the Buddha's teachings on dependent origination. It is said that when a Tibetan king was shown this painting as a teaching on samsara and liberation from samsara, that he understood the teaching and he became fully enlightened. So please pay attention.
The Tibetan word for samsara means realm of possibilities. And in this picture we see the realms of possibilities. There's a circle of these realms, and they are held in the grip of a fierce being whose head is at the top and is gripping this circle of samsara. And this fierce being that is holding all of samsara, all of the realms of possibilities, is Mara, or Yama, the Lord of Death. Whatever is born in samsara dies in samsara. In the upper right-hand corner, outside of the circle of samsara, outside of the sphere, the realm of possibilities is the Buddha, pointing to the admonition or a light in the upper left-hand corner. And the light is indicative of the accumulation of merit wholesome deeds that is the path to Nibbana. And it's also a symbol of Nibbana. The admonition in the tablet or scroll under the light says, take this up, meaning the teachings of the Buddha, and give that up. Entering the Buddha's teaching like an elephant in the lotus pond Destroy the forces of the Lord of Death. One who mindfully engages in this way of discipline will leave the wheel of birth behind and bring suffering to an end. The Buddha is pointing to the fact that there is liberation from the suffering of endless birth and death. And the way to that Liberation is through practices of renunciation. Renunciation, as Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche has said, implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending sufferings of samsara, that vicious cycle of conditioned existence. And with it comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. If you feel this weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status, and you act on that renunciation, you're taking the path to escape from samsara. So let us look at the map of samsara, if you will, to see where we've been wandering or where this mind stream has been wandering all these years, all these lifetimes, all these eons. In the center of the centermost circle, is a picture of a snake, a chicken, and a pig. And these are symbolic of the three unwholesome roots 
in the mind, greed, hatred, and delusion. I always understood them to be that the snake was a depiction of aversion, the chicken, the depiction of delusion, and the pig, the the depiction of greed. But I had my misunderstanding corrected by a Tibetan scholar who said the chicken is really the depiction of greed and the pig is the depiction of delusion. But it really doesn't matter. It's greed, hatred, and delusion, which we're all very familiar with. In the circle surrounding the three unwholesome roots, there's a dark half and a light half. And the dark half is a picture of demon leading beings to the darkness of their own minds. And on the left-hand side, the light side, there is a picture of a renunciate leading pious beings towards heavenly, towards a heavenly being. And it shows the two directions that any being can go, towards the dark, towards the light. Surrounding this circle of the dark and light, there are five large pentads. And these large pentads depict the six realms where our personality can hang out, which, was, which is reflective of our basic personality structure, if you will. I'm going to speak tonight about the realms of experience or realms of existence as states of mind, qualities of mind, rather than actual planes of existence. For some of us, it's a little hard to imagine planes of existence as extensive as spoken about in the teachings of the Buddha. And some of us may find it easier to relate to the mentality of beings that might live in such planes of existence. I've heard that Manindra would give long discourses on the experiences of different beings in all the planes of existence and then acknowledge at the end of a long discourse that you didn't have to believe that. It was true, but you didn't really have to believe that. Because if you practice, it takes practice in any plane of existence or it takes practice with any state of mind in order to free yourself from the grip of birth and death and the suffering that comes with it. The lowest pentad at the bottom of that circle between four and seven o'clock is a depiction of the projection of our mind as a result of aversive karmic actions. It's what our mind projects onto our experience when we're caught in anger, aggression, hatred. And you can see beings there suffering the conflict and argument of a hot hell, the isolation and being cut off of the cold hell, uh, 
the lacerating and the cutting hell of anger and the piercing hell of critical judgment. Well, if you've noticed your own mind or to the extent that you've noticed your own mind and experienced deeply what it feels like to be caught in anger, judgment, uh, isolation, alienation, loneliness, you know what a hellish state of mind that can be. And when we're caught in such states, it's very difficult to see our way out, to even think that there is a way out, that there's some other experience possible. The mind is so full of the suffering of the anger and the isolation or the judgment that, as I mentioned in previous talks, the mind eternalizes that experience as if this is the way it's going to be forever. And that's the experience that beings in hell or those who are caught in these mental states feel, that this experience just goes on and on and on, and it will for seemingly endless eternity. So we know that place in the mind the place of hellish experience. To the right of that, between 2 and 4 o'clock, is depiction of what is called the hungry ghost realm. And the hungry ghost realm is the state of mind, or the, the state of mind of beings in the hungry ghost realm is one of perpetual hunger and craving and uh, the pain of endless uh, unreachable fantasies of how to fulfill uh, your needs, your apparent needs. Beings living there live with the constant terror of want and the hallucination of possibilities. Seeing what cannot be reached, what they can't get, that they believe would satisfy them or to make them happy. These beings are shown with huge bellies meaning they're extremely hungry for and desiring anything, everything for pleasure with extremely small pin-sized throats so that no matter how much they eat, they can't feel satisfied. If you've ever noticed your own mind when you're caught in desire, you know what that feels like. You know, imagining all sorts of Paradise elsewhere, really. Wanting uh, food, sex, power, pain-free experience, good sittings, anything. Wanting what you don't yet have. Imagining others to have it and being unable to reach it is the torture of the mind of those beings caught in hungry ghost realm. It is here that beings with Addictive personalities, compulsive behavior, become fixated and obsessed with uh, getting, having what they cannot uh, achieve. So I think we're all familiar with that realm of the mind also. To the left of that is between, what, 7 and 10 o'clock is the animal realm. And it is the state of mind of beings in the animal realm that they uh, 
live a very regimented and routinized life where they're driven by blind instinct and often have very fixed habits and patterns of behavior. So when we as human beings play deaf or dumb and we stick to our habitual, habitual routine and regimented ways, not open to other possibilities, we're caught in that mental state that cannot really consider our situation to find a way or to, to disentangle ourselves from the suffering of that habit and routine and blind instinct. Beings in this realm, if we even imagine the animal realm, is uh, experience a tremendous amount of fear, paranoia, and uh, just easily threatened by uh, other beings. And when your mind is caught in that routine, regimented uh, behavior as a way of trying to be happy, uh, you know how threatening change can be. In the upper right-hand pentad, between 12 and 2 o'clock, is the human realm. And the human realm is something that's very familiar with us. But let me just say that it's characterized, the human psychology is characterized by competition and the comparative mind, where we, or beings caught here, are endlessly desiring and using their very refined capacity for discriminating distinction to pursue what they believe will bring them pleasure. And the activities of the human realm are endless pursuit of pleasurable activities. And the pleasure can be physical pleasure, emotional pleasure, social pleasure, intellectual pleasure, or spiritual pleasure pursued in the human realm. Humans are lucky in the sense that they're not so caught in suffering they don't have, that they don't have the opportunity to hear and practice the Dharma. We do, but it takes some renunciation to be able to put aside the pursuit of pleasure as a, a kind of a path to happiness. In the human realm, in order to imagine the pleasure that you'd like to seek, it takes a, an endlessly active and restless mind that is constantly uh, strategizing and angling and scheming how to get what it wants. I'm sure you've noticed that also. Trungpa Rinpoche again says, in the human realm you're stuck in an absolute traffic jam of discursive thoughts. It's extremely busy, and there is no end to it. Inherent in all this busyness and this scheming and strategizing how to be happy is a tremendous amount of insecurity and fear, the suffering in the human realm. When we approach our happiness thinking that the more pleasure we experience, the happier we'll be. 
ultimately, it's very uh, painful, but it's even more painful when you become aware of it, that this is what we're doing uh, as we try to really be happy, but uh, being temporarily satisfied with pleasure instead. Those of us who have found some way of temporarily putting aside our pursuit of pleasure and have taken up some forms of spiritual practices uh, have an understanding of or appreciation for and maybe even some experience of what the mind of beings in the heaven realms experience, those beings between, what, 10 and 12 o'clock. And here there are two classes of heavenly beings, those on the lower left, which look like they're warring with those on the upper right. Those on the lower left are the jealous gods, those beings who are caught in ambition, envy, and they're quarreling and fighting those who have more than they do because they want what they see superior beings having. And they are stricken with unbearable envy and resentment at those who have more than they do. In the human realm or the human psychology, the lesser gods, if you will, or the jealous gods are ambitious, jealous, and paranoid. The version of a human or a human who is aspiring for the heaven realm here on earth might imagine that heaven is the acquisition of extreme wealth or power or fame where they're preoccupied with achievement and competition, always trying to be better than everyone else while remaining forever insecure and anxious, struggling to control his or her territory and overcoming all threats to their achievements. It even happens among yogis on retreat sometimes that we see those who apparently have better conditions than we do. And so we feel envious or we feel jealous or we feel concerned like that, even though we too have pretty good conditions here, a lot like the heaven realm. It is said that beings caught in the, or beings' minds in the lower heaven realms are always caught in the realm of intrigue, where uh, it's as if one was born, raised, and died as a diplomat or a politician, always seeking the relationships and the intrigue that is going to get them more power, more fame, more recognition. In the upper right-hand corner of that pentad is the Brahma realm, so the God realm. And beings born here have the highest merit or have the merit that is more powerful than other planes of existence. And the beings that are born here or those of us who experience these states of mind have enormous power. It is said that beings in this realm can satisfy any desire merely by thinking of it. So you can imagine how easy it would be to become intoxicated with your power if any time you thought of a desire, it was fulfilled. Whatever you wanted, 
There it is. And it is said that beings in this condition have a tremendous, tremendous amount of uh, pride uh, and they're intoxicated with their power. Occasionally you may feel that. If you have a good sitting. You know how you feel when you have a good sitting? You get up from that good sitting and think, now I got it. That's the influence of those heavenly realms or those states of mind of the heavenly realm beings. But because one can develop this power and become intoxicated, beings that are caught by this power and intoxication usually aren't interested in the Dharma. And so they waste their life in distraction, pursuing perfect health, comfort, wealth, and happiness. So, this is samsara. Whatever you want can be found here in samsara. Take your pick. And what we've been doing as we've been wandering all these years, lifetimes, wandering in samsara is imagining happiness, planting the seed of happiness in our mind stream, and then getting the opportunity to live it out somewhere in this field of, or the realm of possibilities called samsara. Apparently, beings are being born, living out their lives, and dying in these planes of existence or in these realms of possibilities. But how is it that beings are born, where they're born, and what they experience, and where do they go when they die? For this, we need to look at the 12 links in the outer circle, which depict the cause and effect relationship between different conditions that we all experience in every moment. Samsara, this flowing on from life after life, moving on, wandering endlessly, inevitably. Where we find ourselves now is no accident. The seeds of our experience now were planted long ago. It is the law of karma that brings us the experience we're having. The physical and mental pleasantness and unpleasantness that we experience in each moment is the result of previous karmic actions. What we do with it will determine what we'll experience later. One way of understanding this wheel of karma was articulated by my one of my favorite poets, Jerry. <clears throat> the wheel is turning and you can't slow it down. You can't let go and you can't hold on. You can't go back and you can't stand still. If the thunder don't get you, then the lightning will. <laughs> so, what we're really talking about is karma. Now you might ask, now that we're caught in this karmic, cycling through all these realms of samsara. Where did it all begin? How did we get here? And the Buddha was asked that question. And with his omniscient vision of his infinite past births, he said, 
No first beginning of craving and becoming could be known. No first beginning could be known. And then he asked, which is greater? The tears you have shed while transmigrating and wandering this long time, crying and weeping from being joined with what is displeasing and from being separated from what is pleasing. Which is greater, all those tears or the water in the four great oceans? And he answered his own question with the tears that you have shed. In all of your wandering, in all of your lifetime, it's greater than the waters of the four oceans. And why is that? He explained, from an inconstruable beginning, beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving are transmigrating and wandering on long enough to become disenchanted with all conditioned things, long enough to become dispassionate, long enough to be released. How does it happen? This apparent being wandering from hell to heaven to human to animal to hungry ghost over and over and over again, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Well, the Buddha said, it all begins with ignorance. Link number one in the upper right-hand corner is a picture of a blind person. It is a depiction of the ignorance in the past that has been the seed for our past karmic actions. And this ignorance is primarily of four kinds. It's ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. Remember the first Noble Truth is the truth of Dukkha? When we're unaware of that truth, we'll seek happiness through sensory pleasure, through gaining power, believing that pleasure is something enduring and substantial to be pursued and obtained for our happiness. That's being unaware and ignorant of the first noble truth. We're also ignorant of the second noble truth, or when beings are ignorant of the second noble truth, truth they believe If I can get what I want, then I'll be happy. If I can get what I want, then I'll be happy. Well, that that sounds pretty good. But that's not what the Buddha said in the Second Noble Truth, that it is this very wanting and craving that is this cause of suffering. And those who are ignorant of the Third Noble Truth that there is an end to suffering, believe that the end of suffering may be found in some sort of uh, sensual happiness or some sort of sensory or emotional oblivion or some heaven realm or some indulgence in a sensual paradise here or elsewhere. Believing that this is the real relief from suffering beings act out of ignorance to pursue it, keeping themselves bound to this endless cycling. And when beings are ignorant of and unaware of the fourth noble truth, the path to the end of suffering, 
is not the path to happiness, it's the path to liberation, the end of suffering. When one is unaware of this path, they believe that their happiness or their liberation will happen automatically. Or maybe it will happen due to the intervention of a divine or supreme being. Or that it's already happened, we just need to wake up to it. Or that if I'm just a good person, that's enough. And all of these are not what the Buddha taught, is the path to the end of suffering. So when one is ignorant, or when ignorance is present, it will condition karmic actions. The second link is the picture of a potter busily making new containers. And it is a depiction of the karmic actions of the past that were conditioned by ignorance. Now rather than saying someone is ignorant and therefore someone acts karmically, we could say it is the impersonal mental state of ignorance conditioning the karmic actions that plants the seeds of future existence, future experience. This past karmic actions creates karma. It is the creative karma. And as you remember from the teachings of karma, actions condition results. There needn't be an actor. It's merely the conditioning relationship. It's like if you throw a ball into the air, what happens? It falls to the floor or it falls to the ground. Why? Because the law of gravity, a law unto itself says, you throw something into the air, it'll fall to the ground. It didn't happen because some person made it happen or because you thought it should happen or you willed it to happen or some supreme being made it happen. It happened due to the law of gravity. Karma is the law of karma. It is the law of cause and effect, which states, as you've heard, if you act with a wholesome intention, the results will be pleasant. If you act with an unwholesome intention, the results will be unpleasant. Nevertheless, results are conditioned by karmic action. Karma needs to give its result. When conditions support the unfolding of karmic results, one will experience a momentary birth of some resultant karma. This is link number three. It shows a picture of a monkey hanging from a limb, really. It should be a monkey swinging from one limb to another. It's a little bit unclear here, but it is a depiction of what is called the relinking consciousness between past karmic action 
and present karmic result. Meaning, the moment that you're experiencing now is a present karmic result of a past karmic action. If this moment is pleasant, it was conditioned by a wholesome karmic action in the past. It is this consciousness, link number three, the monkey swinging from limb to limb, consciousness conditioned from moment to moment, from past life to present life, from moment to moment throughout this present life, and from the last moment of this life to the first moment of another life. With this arising of consciousness comes a body and a mind. Link number four shows two beings in a boat being carried across the river. This is the body and mind being carried across the stream of life, if you will. It, too, is a result of past karma. The past karmic ignorance and actions give rise to consciousness, the mind and the body, and link number four, which is... Link number five, which is a picture of a building with doors and windows, it should be a building with six openings in it, which is the six sense doors to the mind. Depiction of the six sense doors. When one experiences birth, or when one experiences a moment of consciousness, there is the body and the mind, and there are the six sense doors, which condition contact with sense experience. Link number six, which shows two beings embracing, meaning that if there are sense doors, they will be contacted, if you will, by sense impressions. This is contact, where sounds strike the ear, sights strike the eye, taste strike the tongue, thoughts strike the mind. Can't be helped, can't be avoided. If you're born as a human being, you will see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think as a result of past karmic actions. When contact is made between sense objects and sense doors, there is a feeling. And that is link number seven, which shows someone sticking a thorn in their eye, which is a lot of feeling there. I guess that's what they mean by that. I guess that's why they picked that. So, some feelings that you experience will be pleasant, some will be unpleasant, some will be neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But with every sense contact, there is a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. It's important to understand that these links operate quite independent of any being. Ignorance conditions actions. Actions conditions result. The result of consciousness conditions mind and body. Mind and body conditions six sense doors. Six sense doors conditions uh, sense contact. Sense contact conditions feeling. Feelings condition reaction. If you feel something unpleasant, our habitual response is to have some aversion. If we experience something pleasant, our habitual response, the conditioned response, is usually attachment, clinging, craving, wanting. 
And if you experience something neutral, the conditioned response or reaction is usually delusion or lack of awareness. Link number eight is tanha, or it's craving. It is the craving of aversion or attachment for or against pleasant and unpleasant feelings. In a moment of experience, when we feel something, when we recognize the experience, there is the consciousness, the sense, the sense contact, the sense feeling, that all is a given due to karmic actions in the past. Now with this feeling, this pleasant and unpleasant feeling, we have the present moment's karmic reaction or relationship to what has been experienced. So when you experience pleasantness, we again, if ignorant or if unaware, react with attachment. If it's unpleasant and we're unaware, we react with aversion. If it's neutral feeling and we're unaware, we react with, or I should say, delusion arises in the mind. We could say that this link number eight, tanha, is again kalesis, one of the defilements that arises in the mind, attachment, aversion, delusion, those three conditions in the center of the, of the circle. And when karmic action takes place, this craving, we, what did you say? In our minds, we grab onto, we grasp, which is link number six, six, seven, eight, nine. It's a picture of uh, a monkey grabbing a fruit. Well, let me go back to link number eight. We see a fellow drinking a cup of tea, trying to quench his thirst, which is craving. Thirst is craving. And the monkey in link number nine is grasping the object of his desire, the fruit, if you will, which clinging or craving conditions grasping. Once we've grasped firmly the idea or the fruit of what we want, we will act to consume it or to get it or to become it or to have it. And in this action to become, to have, to get, is link number 10, which shows a pregnant woman. And this is the actions we take in order to become what we have wanted and grasped in our mind. So the pregnant woman is a depiction, if you will, of actions towards becoming. Now, imagine all of those futures you have planned for yourself. Those are seeds of becoming, planted in your mind stream. When conditions ripen, your mind will give birth to that possibility, either here in this lifetime or in another lifetime. All of those seeds of things you've wanted to do, things you've wanted to experience, things you've wanted to have or become, 
They're all seeds, just sitting in the mind stream, waiting for the ripe opportunity. And when it comes, conditions will give rise and there'll be another birth. And the birth will be experienced as in number, uh, link number 11, as a woman giving birth. Huh? Once these conditions are set up in the mind, they're bound to produce results. Conditions will come around. Somewhere in the vast expanse of eternity, conditions will ripen, and the seeds that you've planted will sprout. And you'll get the opportunity to live out whatever it is you've imagined as the source of your happiness. And once you take birth, either momentarily in a thought or on some plane of existence, there is the inevitable living out that life culminating in or experiencing suffering and culminating in old age, sickness, and death. Link number 12, where we have a being carrying a burden on his back, which is our self. So here we have this conditioned existence. Ignorance, conditioning actions, giving rise to the inevitable results of Consciousness, body and mind, sense doors, sense objects, contact with sense objects, the feeling that comes with it, giving rise to the craving, grasping, and the becoming that gives rise to future birth and future suffering, old age, sickness, and death. And this circle goes on and on and has been going on since the Buddha said an unfathomable beginning of time. And each one of us if you will, is the, uh, we can't really say the owner, but is uh, the awareness of a single stream of consciousness that has been wandering on like this, due to conditioning. When ignorance is present, the circle just runs endlessly. Well, the Buddha looked at all of this conditioning and said, is there a way to escape this conditioning? Now remember, whatever you imagine, whatever pleasure, whatever you imagine is the source of your happiness, whether it's being angry and fierce and competitive, or whether it's being dull and stupid, or whether it's being you know, heavenly or proud or powerful, whatever it is you've imagined as a source of your happiness, it's in samsara. You can find it in one of these planes of existence. But the Buddha wasn't looking for the happiness of samsara. The Buddha was looking for liberation from the suffering of samsara. And so he looked at this chain of conditioned phenomena rolling on over eons and eons to see where one might escape. Given that the karma, karmic actions of the past have already happened, and they will give rise to the karmic fruit in the present. Links one and two and three through seven are inevitable. You can't escape them. We will experience our karmic results, the karmic fruit of actions taken in the past. But it's at link seven where feeling arises that there is the opportunity to apply awareness, 
mindful awareness. And it is here the Buddha said that if one is mindfully aware of the feeling in each moment, the conditioned habit of avoiding unpleasant and seeking pleasant and being confused by neutral experience comes to an end. When one is aware of Four Noble Truths, the truth of dukkha caused by craving is possible to be free of by fulfilling the Eightfold Path, purifying your speech and behavior, purifying your mind, purifying your understanding. It is the application of mindfulness to the feelings of each moment that deconditions or unhooks the chain of conditioning from planting the seeds for future becoming. What we normally call the mind is the deluded mind, Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche said. It is a turbulent vortex of thoughts, whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning. And unless they are immediately overpowered with the proper antidote, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred or attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic imprint. On the other hand, if we're able to apply mindfulness, if there is mindfulness present in that moment of experience, feeling, The cycle is broken. We don't act in pursuit of the pleasant. There's no action in avoidance of the unpleasant. And there's no confusion about neutral experience. It's here that we see the chain of causation broken or come to an end. It is mindfulness that notices these 12 links. Notices when ignorance is in the mind. Notices the sense consciousness. Notices the body. Notices the mind. Notices the sense door activation. Notices the contact with pleasant and unpleasant. Feels pleasant and unpleasant. It is mindfulness that breaks the link. It's equanimity that accepts this is the way it is right now. It's feeling that experiences pleasant and unpleasant. It's perception that recognizes their impermanence, their insubstantiality, their unsatisfactoriness. It's non-attachment that lets go. It's wisdom that realizes the end of suffering. In all of this activity, there's no being. There's just the impersonal conditions of karma unfolding. When awareness is there, the being is free. When there's no awareness, beings suffer. With this understanding of samsara and the path to, or the practice of disentangling oneself from suffering and the causes of suffering, We can see that the 
the view or the vision of samsara is vast in expanse of time and space. It's just endless. But for each one of us, it's this moment that matters. What we experience now is a given from our karmic actions. Something in the past is sure to be come to fruition in this moment. Pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, determined by our past karmic actions. But what is done with it in the present moment will determine whether there's a being to suffer or liberation from suffering. So the wheel is turning, can't slow it down, can't let go and you can't hold on. We can pay attention. And in that pay attention, liberation happens. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.